We often hear people wishing us a long, happy, and healthy life. But what if the length isn't what matters most? What if instead it's the breath, depth, and purpose of each day that matters most? Welcome to the Live the Width of Your Life podcast. My name is Annette Ardellian Kuzma, and join me weekly as I interview guests who make changes in their own lives to live more fully with intention, gratitude, and joy. Be prepared to be inspired by their stories of how they shifted their mindset, took courageous action, and designed the life that they always wanted to live. Today's guest is Steve Socaney. Steve is the managing director at Carter, a company dedicated to advancing philanthropy worldwide through professional counsel in the areas of fundraising, strategic planning, governance, and organizational development. Steve has over 30 years of experience in the nonprofit sector and has held a variety of leadership positions in higher education and social service organizations. Prior to joining Carter, Steve spent two years helping to establish the West 117th Foundation, serving as its first executive director. Additionally, he spent 27 years at Kent State University in a number of roles, culminating this tenure as vice president for institutional advancement and executive director of the Kent State University Foundation. Steve's fundraising council focuses on building donor relationships, strategy development for securing principal, leadership, and major gifts, communicating compelling philanthropic case statements for donor support, and motivating stakeholders to convert them from friends to funders. Steve has a strong passion for civic involvement. For more than 10 years, he's been an active board member with MOCA Cleveland. He also served as the co-chair of the board of directors, the 2014 Gay Games 9 in Cleveland, Ohio. The 2014 Gay Games, also known as GG9, were an international multi-sport event and cultural gathering organized by and specifically for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered athletes, artists, and musicians. In his free time, he enjoys traveling, appreciating and supporting the arts, and practicing meditation and mindfulness. Welcome, Steve, to the show. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Anetta. Great to be here. So um, I'm so excited to have you on this show because uh, I have really enjoyed watching your trajectory over the last couple of years. Can you share a little bit more about your background with us? Sure. Uh, So I, uh, you know, I've been involved in higher education philanthropy and philanthropy as as a career my whole life. I really kind of, that was never something that I had thought that I would get into, but it was, uh, I think it was a, I was a victim of circumstance and I say that in a positive way. I started in college working in our alumni relations department and then uh, my, my um, uh, responsibilities got gradually more intense. And then when I was getting ready to graduate, uh, my boss announced that she was leaving and so her boss called me into his office and said, hey, would you like to take Mary's job? And I said, I didn't have anything on the horizon. So I said, sure. And, uh, you know, I ended up uh, working at my alma mater for the next uh, two and a half years. And then I saw a position open up. Actually, my sister saw an ad in the plane dealer for a position at Kent State. And she basically said, isn't this what you do? Uh, You should consider applying for this because it would be great to have you come back to Cleveland and be closer to family. So 
Uh, as it turns out, I applied for the position and in 1993 started, started my career at Kent State University and uh, stayed there for 27 years. Obviously, I had varying, um, varying positions uh, at Kent State and ended up growing in my career as Kent State was growing in its fundraising and alumni relations area. And, you know, my aspiration had always been to be the vice president of the division. I thought uh, that would be a culmination of everything that I had learned and to be able to be responsible for the division was something that I thought really is what defined me. So that opportunity was presented to me uh, in 2015. And um, while I certainly have, uh, you know, no regrets and I'm very proud of all of the accomplishments, I think what I realized um, after the fact is that I made a lot of trade-offs in order to be in this position and felt that it was my position as an executive officer that really defined who I was rather than what I should have been focused on. And so that was really, you know, how I got into this. And um, it was certainly not something that I went to school for, but it was it was something that I that I truly loved. And uh, but I think my my priorities were a little off kilter. Mm, oh, my gosh. I think you're many of us can relate to that. Um, I didn't necessarily also aspire to go into banking, but you know, spent 22 years in the banking space. So when you went to school and like take us back and as a young adult, um, when you graduated, you know, what were some of your dreams? Did you have any dreams or have you, did you think about what you wanted your career to look like or, you know, any specifics about what the future was going to look like? You know, I really, um, as I thought about it, you know, it's it's so interesting. The the my first uh, salary, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so rich, I have so much money because I went from, you know, making minimum wage uh, to this salary. So the first thing that I did was get a brand new car, and I was so excited because that was the the first new car that I had. And I really, you know, as I as I went through this and as I thought about it, you know, I guess the salary always tended to you know, I thought, oh, this is so great. It's going to afford me the opportunity to, you know, buy things and do things. And um, so I was, I was a little wrapped up, I think, in, uh, in the monetary and uh, as well as probably, you know, the prestige, even though there were times when I tried to downplay what my position was, you know, when I became an executive officer, it was, uh, you know, people would look at me differently and I think as I rose through the ranks, you know, people that had been colleagues of mine, I was now their supervisor. And so it was really interesting as I look back in terms of how people regarded me. And, and I just assumed that regardless of what position I held, I was still the same person. But clearly, you know, it, uh, that, was, uh, that was not the case. And, and it's only through reflection that I've, I've come to that realization. But, you know, I love to travel. I got to travel all over the country in my job and meet with, with people that had done very well in their lives. So I got to, you know, go to all of the great places and all of the great cities. And, and I thought that that was, uh, you know, probably the most important thing. And clearly looking back, it wasn't. But, you know, I was young and uh, that was just where I was at in my head, I guess. Yeah. No, I love this idea of um, many of us sometimes associate our 
identity with our title or what the job is. And especially when we're younger, right? If um, it, it's easier to, to do that. So you said that as upon reflection, you realize that that wasn't necessarily who you were and even the money, which was a strong motivator and it, it is a top motivator for many, it wasn't necessarily um, your top motivator. So take me back to a couple of years ago because you made a significant change in your life just a few years ago. Sure. So, you know, having been in the position that I was and, and I was familiar with uh, with the position at, at Kent State, you know, I had been, you know, and I just assumed that, you know, I was going to be going, uh, uh, retiring from Kent State and then I'd have my nice, uh, a nice pension and just have, you know, live out my golden years um, based on all of the experience that I had in the, the tenure that I had at Kent State. But I think, you know, it became very clear and without going into too much detail that, you know, when you get to the level that I was at, you know, when leadership changes at the top, I've always heard the story that um, they tend to bring in their own people. And I felt, uh, I guess I was a bit naive thinking, oh, that would never happen to me because I've been this loyal employee for 27 years and I, I love the university. And um, it just became clear that um, our uh, our vision and uh, goals and objectives were not in alignment. So separated from the university in a, in a pretty quick way and uh, something that I had not anticipated. And it was it was tough because I had only known that for the last 27 years. It was very comfortable. It was very reliable. Um, and so I really had to, to figure out what I was going to do. And I, I knew I needed to decompress because as uh, many people would say, including my, uh, my husband, you know, and I didn't see this at the time, but they, they made comments like, you were a heart attack waiting to happen. You were so stressed out all of the time. You know, all I ever did was focus on work. I had no work-life balance. But at the time, I didn't see myself in that way. I just figured I was doing what I needed to do. But, you know, for heaven's sakes, getting up at 4.30 in the morning and being at work by 6 a.m. and then getting home at 8 p.m. at night. And while I was trying to watch television, still checking my emails and doing work things and spending time on the weekend, you know, I look back on that and I'm thinking, what, what was I doing? So then I went from that to, you know, when I left my position, I didn't have anything. So it was like, okay, what am I going to do? Fortunately, it was the summertime and I like to be outside. So I ended up, you know, just relaxing and trying to decompress from all of that. But at the same time, I was trying to figure out, okay, what the heck do I do next? Because I had, I was on a path and I just assumed, you know, in five years, I would be done with that path and go on to the next chapter. And now it was like, okay, now what do I do? Oh my gosh. And I know that many can relate to the story. It happens to, to many people. So what does that look like when you go from maybe running a hundred miles an hour to then stopping. How long did it take for you to decompress or to de-stress or to just be able to get yourself to like a restful state after you left? You know, that's a great question. I would say I, I, I did it in phases um, because I think at first, you know, it was just turning off the, the computer, so to speak, and turning off the emails because there were no more emails coming in. 
And, and I basically, you know, as I think about what I was doing, I basically just stopped and, you know, this is going to sound kind of funny or ridiculous, but I just spent the summer at the pool and, you know, and just reading and, you know, just not thinking about anything and not really thinking about what was next. So it was kind of like I turned off the light switch. I went from being in this high stress job to all of a sudden nothing. And, um, you know, as I think back, it's, it's hard because I didn't really start my journey into wellness and, uh, you know, improving my mental health until the fall. Um, because I'm like, oh, I don't need that. I'll just, you know, I'll be fine. And I was, I was probably living in, in a bit of, um, I don't know if it was denial, but it was all I knew. And I just shut it off and I just didn't even want to, I didn't even want to go there. Yeah, no, I, I remember that summer. And, um, so when you took the time off, like you said, shut the light switch off, what did you notice? Did you find that you were noticing things around you? Was your temperament changing? Were you starting to notice small changes in you when you just started to rest? You know, I, I guess in, in a way, um, yes, but I also think I needed to be guided to recognize because I think, you know, as I, as I think back, sure, I, I didn't have the stress of emails um, and things and meetings, constant meetings. And, you know, because, you know, the, the months leading up to it was all about, you know, Zoom meetings, you know, from, from 7.30 a.m. till 6.30 at night. It was kind of nice that I didn't have Zoom meetings to have to worry about. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd be like, okay, what am I going to do today? Uh, which was crazy because I think the other thing that I used to, getting back to an earlier question, I used to think when I was young that wouldn't it be great to have a job where your calendar was completely planned out? You didn't have to schedule meetings because meetings were just put on your calendar and you would just go from one meeting to the next. <laughs> and, and, you know, the old adage, be careful what you wish for, because yeah. my time was not my time. It was not mm -hmm. my own. I mean, it was so prescripted and so planned out that I really didn't have a chance to breathe, so to speak. So mm -hmm. in some respects, then I had a whole lot of time to breathe, but I didn't necessarily know what I was going to do with myself. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, you know, okay, well, I guess I could, I could plant flowers. I could weed the garden. I could, you know, um, watch television or, you know, catch up on reading my New Yorker magazines and all of these other things. But I really didn't, I think it was just so, um, it was so abrupt in terms of when the decision was made that I really wasn't sure. And I didn't, I, I to be honest, I didn't know what then what the next chapter was going to be and it wasn't until you know through conversations with you and with my husband mm -hmm. you know the thought of meditating and having an executive coach and really exploring that i'm like well i've done that before what is this going to do that's any different um and i just i, I going into it i was a little pessimistic i got to be honest but it wasn't until i really got into it and really you know, it wasn't just an add-on to an already crazy day. It ended up being the focus. And I mm -hmm. think that made all of the difference in the world in terms of being at the right place at the right time and, and having that crack of receptiveness 
um, to to go in it, you know, and see how it would uh, how it would turn out. And then obviously that crack ended up being the window wide open, so to speak. Mm. Oh my gosh! So tell us a little bit about what happened then in the fall. So you and I did have a meeting. And you, I was actually surprised because you reached out because I talked to you before. As I do to everybody, I always tell everyone they should meditate. And some people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Try that. I have an app. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, about your journey as you started focusing in on your personal development and planning you know, what you wanted for your life and also starting to focus in a little bit on self-care with things like meditation and mindfulness. Right. So I think, you know, I, I think, again, I was going into it and, and uh, I was um, open to the opportunity, but I really didn't know what to expect. And I think it was, quite honestly, just having authentic conversations with you uh, and really beginning to, to come, to, to come to, uh, terms with what I was really looking for or what I was lacking. And I think the one thing that probably, and, I, and I've looked back over my journals, one of the things that, you know, I recall you suggesting that I do early on was to start to journal every day uh, mm-hmm. as part of meditation. And I remember when I first started journaling, it was pretty, you know, probably superficial, I would think, that I was just, you know, writing things down Um because I, that was my task. And I was always good at, okay, you tell me something to do and I will do it. That I always <laughs> prided myself in that. And uh, whereas, you know, as I started getting into this and realizing it, you know, I think my journal entries definitely became more substantive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there would be some days that were, you know, more substantive than others. But I think that is the journey that we're on not every day is going to be, you know, 100%. And I think I found that with meditation as well. I mm-hmm. think at first it was, you know, I had a lot of voices going on inside and trying to figure out. And I thought I was looking for this magic pill that, mm-hmm. you know, okay, I'm going to start meditation and it's and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to be able to quiet. And, and I, as I was going through it, I quickly realized, you know, there were still voices <laughs> and, you know, through the guided meditation, you know, to, to acknowledge it, it's okay to acknowledge it. Not every meditation is going to be a hundred percent and it's a journey. And I think I really, I think what I found more than anything is that this is not a check the box kind of thing. This is a journey and this is something that I'm going to be on the rest of my life. And so, and I think that when I came to that realization, you know, and I started reading other books that reinforced that. And I think, you know, the, the first book that I read, because uh, it was an easy read, was The Four Agreements. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, these are so, I, I mean, these are, these are basic tenets, but I hadn't <laughs> really thought about it. And I, would kept, I kept going back and referring to them. And I think the more I lived those, uh, those tenets, it made such a difference and then as I read more things, you know, and, and this is something that I would have never done. I would have never looked at, you know, self-help books and meditation books and well-being books, but mm-hmm. I just started hungering for those. Mm-hmm. And and I remember Matt saying to me, who are you reading these books? And it just became, you know, I've, I've learned so much. Uh, and, and obviously we can, we can go into that and peel that away a little bit more, but 
you know, I think one of the things that I learned in the process that I probably hadn't thought about is, you know, the outside, Steve, everybody thought, you know, life of the party, very gregarious, very extroverted. But I was, I did not love myself at all. I was miserable. And I think Mm -hmm. by going through this wellness, it helped me, you know, one of the, one of the biggest takeaways is to, that I love myself now and that I'm so grateful and so appreciative of everything I have. And even though I had like material things, you know, who cares about that? That's one thing that I've learned, you know, sure. I've got a, I live in a beautiful home and, you know, I have a lot of beautiful things around me, but that's not what I want to be remembered for. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know we'll maybe talk a little bit about that, but I was so obsessed with that that it clouded who I was. And it was only through doing meditation and mindfulness that I really uh, came to the realization that my priorities were, were definitely out of whack, so to speak. Yeah. And you are so disciplined because I know you're always, you join meditation almost every single day and you have for the last two and a half years, which is amazing. And it's wonderful. Uh, Cause I do think that the more you do it, the um, easier it is and the routines start to stick. But um, we also did some exercises around identifying the different areas of life and your satisfaction. And like you said, maybe on the outside, you looked like you had it all going on. And on the inside, there were some, some cracks and some things. Um, tell me a little bit more about what the exercise of kind of walking through the various areas of life and defining what a successful, well-lived life looked like for you. Well, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of, cause I hadn't really thought about all of the, the different uh, components on the, on the wheel. And so as I, as I thought about it, you know, um, it helped me put the right things into perspective. And I think what I realized first and foremost, and I should have, uh, maybe I should have uh, referred to that before I got on this podcast. So just being completely <laughs> authentic, but I think, you know, it, it, I think taking care of myself first mm-hmm. and foremost was, was the priority. And obviously, you know, looking at the relationship that I had with my spouse was very important. Um, clearly, you know, I wanted to be able to have a certain amount of income um, just so that I could do the kinds of things that I wanted to do. It wasn't mm-hmm. that it was defining what I needed to do. Um, and I think, you know, I think as I looked at that, I realized that some are going to have different weights than others. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was, that was a very useful exercise and, um, just knowing, prioritizing what I wanted to, uh, to accomplish and what was the most important, uh, priorities. I think that really helped me to, to self-examine that. Yeah. Um, I remember lots of conversations around what do you want to do next in terms of the career and aligning it to your life values and the things that were most important to you. Can you share a little bit about what it was like to, at your age, after already having such a successful career for you know several decades, um, deciding what you wanted to do next? Well, clearly I wanted to, I, I enjoy you know, the profession of, of philanthropy. And I knew that whatever, whatever I did next, I wanted to be passionate about the cause that I was representing, because that is very, very important to me. And I also truly believe 
um, that what, I, what fundraising, for example, is an art, not a science. And it's all about, you know, having authentic um, uh, relationships with, uh, with donors and trying to encourage them to uh, make a gift to support a cause. And if you can't get behind that 100%, people are going to see, they're going to see through that. And while, you know, if you go into sales and, and you're selling a widget, so to speak, you know, people need that widget. So it's not, it's not as, you know, perhaps as important. I mean, you still have to have a lot of the interpersonal skills that I believe I have. But I think for philanthropy, people don't have to give you money. Yeah, they may have uh, their tax advisor saying, hey, you need to give money away, but they're giving to a cause that they really believe in. And, and you're the liaison, you're the representative uh, that connects their passion with a corresponding need. I did always pride myself in, in, uh, in my career being able to do that. And I had many people say, wow, you're really good. You got me to come up with the idea to make a gift, whether it was to fund a scholarship or a building mm -hmm. without even having to ask. So I knew that I wanted to continue to do that because that's what I've always done. But I knew that it needed to be for a cause that I could believe in and I could really wrap my arms around. I, I I, that, was, that was an absolute. Mm -hmm. And so once you decided and set some parameters around it, um, did you find that um, it was easy or difficult to kind of find that next role? Well, you know, in the category of being, you know, uh, I think timing sometimes is everything, but uh, mm -hmm. being in the right place at the right time. And I think the other thing was, the other thing that I learned was the, you know, people always said, oh, your network, your network. And I never really regarded people as my network because that mm -hmm. just seemed so um, sanitized and, and, and unauthentic. Mm -hmm. um, but I realized that these relationships that I had built with people you know, it went beyond, you know, my my previous relationship with them. So it was purely by chance that, you know, I was getting to the end of the summer. Uh, as I mentioned, the pool was going to be closing. So I needed to figure <laughs> out what the heck I was going to be doing. And uh, I got connected to two individuals that were starting up in a, uh, uh, a development project that was going to impact the LGBTQ plus neighborhood. And, and being a neighbor or being part of that, you know, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. So, you know, was introduced to them, did a tour of the facility. Um, they talked about setting up a foundation. And so I just started asking what I thought in my mind were basic questions and they hadn't really thought about it. And, you know, that was on a Friday afternoon on Saturday. They asked if I would consider consulting for them. And then mm -hmm. I started doing that immediately. And, and then I uh, eventually, they asked me to, to be the inaugural executive director four months later. So it really was a very seamless process. It wasn't as if I had to update my resume and do interviews. Yeah. It was just a very, you know, a very easy process. And again, as I look back on it, it was, it was the perfect opportunity for me because it was, I assumed that I would just go back into higher education fundraising and I would probably, you know, reach out to a headhunter because yeah. they had been approaching me all the time. 
And I just thought that that was what I was going to do. And, and this was something very different mm-hmm. that I had not really done. I mean, we did some projects for LGBT related causes at the university, but not where I would jump in a hundred percent. And it was just, it was amazing. And I truly, you know, um, again, as I look back and as I look forward to, you know, one of the books that was really impactful to me was The Surrender Experiment uh, by Michael Singer, where, you know, and and sometimes I preface this and I probably shouldn't that, you know, if, if you, you know, just let, you know, the universe happen the way it's supposed to happen, what you're supposed to be doing is what's going to happen. And I think in this case, this is exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, and, and I read a, uh, another book recently that, you know, the, the world has been around for, for how long and, and all of the, the time that has elapsed billions of years, maybe not billions, but it's, it's a long time has led to where I'm at today, talking to you right. and everything. There's a purpose behind everything. Yeah. And if you just surrender to that piece that, you know, you can fight it. But if you just surrender to it and let things happen, I truly believe, and I'm an example of this, that that the things that are supposed to happen are what happens. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I have to try not to chuckle because the old Steve would never have said something like this. You probably... <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I do see it over and over again um, in my own life and with, with my clients that when we decide to open ourselves up to something and we start spending time reading the books, meditating, taking the effort to define what a well-lived life looks like to you, we become more open and we notice things more, right? That's the part of mindfulness. And suddenly conversations, we're a bit more present and we ask better questions or we develop a good relationship or you reach out to someone that maybe you haven't talked to in a while and all these little synchronicities, right? They start to add up and suddenly new opportunities are available all around us. Um, so I agree with you. I, I see it all the time and I think it's pretty amazing. Um, so one of the other things I want to ask you about was you've just really pushed through a lot of comfort zones the last couple of years. So you started to meditate. You started, I know, um, having some pretty um, interesting new routines that you established for yourself, focusing in on your health. So what does it feel like to constantly be pushing yourself and growing and and sort of expanding beyond the comfort zones that you had for so long? Well, you know, it's, uh, I mean, first of all, it feels really good. But I also know that, you know, what I have learned is that, you know, much like I used the metaphor before where I just flipped off the light switch, you Mm -hmm. know, I still have predispositions and I still have these uh, internal saboteurs that, (laughs) you know, it's easy to fall back into. But I think the one thing that I have realized um, is that I begin to recognize that and, and that I'm not going to make the same mistake or, or if I see myself going down that path, I recognize it uh, because I tend to, you know, again, um, I tend to think, take things personally. And and as you know, through our coaching, I am very much a people pleaser, but at the end of the day, I've got to be happy with myself and I've got to focus on myself first and foremost. And again, 
sometimes that's that's easier than others. I mean, it's I, I love to eat good food. Uh, I love to enjoy fine wine and and other things. Um, and I think you know I've kind of fallen off the wagon a little bit um, with respect to walking and and exercising. Um, and I and I recognize that, and I need to get back onto that because I felt so good when I was doing it. And as you acknowledged earlier, I'm very routinized. Once I build that into my day, you know, I'm I'm very, very, that's one thing I think that has continued through the my journey. I'm very disciplined once I once I do that. But I think, you know, what I have found through meditation and, and well-being is, you know, there are times when the old Steve starts creeping in and I'm getting upset about something, and I'll just mm-hmm. stop and do some breathing exercises and it totally diffuses the situation. And I, and I look at it, uh, I look at it very, very differently. Oh my gosh. So, so many good things, nuggets here. Um, I love the fact that you're breathing because as we know, our breath indicates how we're doing. If we're breathing quickly, we might realize we're stressed or anxious and you can also adjust your breathing by breathing deeper, creating more energy or relaxing. So I love that you're using, you're using that. Um, you mentioned something about the saboteurs and that is an assessment that I love doing that identifies each of us have self-sabotaging behaviors and creating that awareness for ourselves is so great because then we can catch ourselves in the moment, especially when we're stressed. So how has that assessment sort of helped you to be able to self-regulate over and over again when you need to? Well, I think, um, as I said, I think I am inherently, and I've done every every test imaginable from <laughs> the DISC system to Myers-Briggs to um, the Spark, Spark type, mm-hmm. and, and everything from when I was in my 20s to where I am now. I am a high I, so I am an influencer, but I am definitely a people pleaser, and and you know, the worst thing that can ever, ever happen is to, to feel like I failed somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so I would always work that much harder, um, because I thought, okay, the worst thing that I can do is, is fail or not. And I think that was part of, you know, when I got the position to be an executive officer, I'm like, this is the pinnacle of my career. And, and this is, uh, I've, I've achieved, you know, this, this major milestone, but then, you know, part of it is, you know, people aren't always, most people when you're at this level, and, and um, I'll digress for a second, I had an executive assistant that uh, gave me this little uh, book of different mantras. And one of them that has stuck with me forever has been, it's lonely at the top, but you eat better uh, because it is lonely. <laughs> at the top. And, yeah. you know, and people aren't calling you to tell you that you're doing a great job. They're calling you with problems issues that need to be resolved. So it really, it's, it was, it was a constant, you know, oh my gosh, it's day after day, hour after hour, it was putting out one fire after another. And I think, you know, what, what I realized is that those are my, that's my primary saboteur because I would never want to not be able to solve a problem because if I wasn't able to solve a problem, I felt people would think of me differently. And um, even though I always said to people, you know, it's okay to make a mistake as long as you've learned from it. I was always the hardest on myself 
because I never wanted to show a weakness or, um, you know, an insecurity. So I would just, um, you know, plug away and, uh, and, and I see that, you know, it, it does creep up sometimes if things don't go the way I thought they were going to go, you know, I hear those voices in my head again saying, Hey, Steve, uh, you're not pleasing this, this person. And, uh, they're thinking, perhaps they're thinking negatively of you or they're not respecting you. And most of the time, there's no question that that's just totally in my head. And that's just the voices telling me that's really not the case. And I, but I, but now I recognize it and um, much faster. And I also believe that, you know, I need to, at the end of the day, you know, what I know to be my truth is that it really doesn't matter what other people say. It gets back to the four agreements. Don't t- take things personally. You know, I need to focus on me. And and that's the, that again is the biggest journey and the biggest outcome that I've made is just focusing on me, which is why I'm so disciplined with meditation and some of these other things. Uh, and which is why I have to, you know, get back out walking and doing those kinds of things, because I want to have quality of life. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't want to, I, I look at people and this is not to sound judgmental, but I want to be able to, you know, not have a problem getting out of a chair or not being winded going up a flight of stairs to be able to enjoy things without having to, to uh, dread, oh my gosh, am I going to be huffing and puffing and, and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, no, it's so true. The investments that we make in ourselves really do pay dividends um, short term and long term, but especially in the longer term, if we're consistent with it. So Steve, I know you have a lot of passions outside of just your career. You know, travel is a big passion of yours. And also you are on the board of Mocha. And so you love all things beautiful, as you said, especially art. So tell us a little bit more about how you've um, created a life that allows you to um, enjoy things that you're passionate about, as well as just work and, and your own self-care. Well, I think it's a, it's about setting setting aside the time um, to do the things that I'm really interested in and passionate about. And I think you know we just got back from a, from a trip to Italy, and I think in the past you know um, I would have uh, I would have just kind of checked the box. Oh, we need to see this. We need to see this um, this monument, this uh, piece of art. And now it's more about the quality of the experience rather than the quantity of things. And I will, I will say um, uh, one of my first trips overseas, uh, I was in Paris. And long story short, you know, we ended up being in the Louvre. Uh, that's when the Da Vinci Code had just come out. And um, there ended up being a bomb threat. So we had to leave. And so we were all disappointed that we weren't going to be able to, to see the Louvre. And it was, it was probably March. So it was like in the fifties, we ended up going back to where we were staying and there was a little circus in the town square. And we ended up just sitting down and watching these Parisian children, you know, playing in the circus. We would have never experienced that. And again, there was a reason that this happened. So it's that kind of quality experience. And I think what I have found when I'm traveling and, and even when I'm, I'm meeting with people that don't look like me or sound like me, you know, I really want to understand what their life is about and ask those, those kinds of questions or look at art. And, you know, I think about that in terms of modern and contemporary art, which I'm very passionate about. I love meeting the artists 
because there may be things that I'm not necessarily going to hang on my wall, but I love hearing the journey uh, that they went through uh, to produce something like that. And I think by exposing yourself to so many diverse perspectives, whether it's within the United States or in Europe, it just helps you realize you're, we're more alike than we are different. And, and I think that's something that I would have never, I would have never really thought about. I was just kind of in my, in my little silo, kind of plugging away, going through life. And, and now I really look at the quality of the conversation. Um, and, I, and I would have quality conversations, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm looking at things very, very differently. And I've, I've, I've met people that I would have never thought our paths would have crossed. But again, getting back to you know the work that I've done, there's an absolute reason why I am meeting this person and, and I need to learn from them as much as they need to learn from me. And it's a shared experience. And I've just, you know, everything that I'm doing now outside of work, whether it's looking at a piece of art or volunteering for something or traveling or just, you know, reflecting outside, it's, it's very, I'm looking at it through a much different lens, but it's very purposeful and, and everything is happening the way it's supposed to happen. I love that clarity and sort of that allowing that you have in your life right now. So you said something at the earlier, at the beginning of the conversation where you said that um, your title, your job is not your destiny. It's not how you want to be remembered necessarily. So um, what is, what do you want your legacy to be or how do you want to be remembered? So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So again, I'm reading this book right now. It's uh, called From Strength to Strength. And it talks about, you know, I'm in this phase of my life uh, being, in, uh, being in my middle 50s. And, and one chapter, when I, when I thought about that question, one chapter that, uh, that jumped out to me is, in terms of my legacy, is, you know, at your funeral, what do you want your eulogy to be? Do you want it to be a resume eulogy or do you want it to be a eulogy of virtues? And I really, you know, at the end of the day, you know, some of the examples that were given and it's so, so true. And I, I, I really believe this is, you know, I don't want my eulogy to be focused or my legacy to necessarily be focused on professional accomplishments or titles that I had. You know, I, I want to be remembered as someone that loved themselves, was a good person, was authentic, had integrity, um, that, you know, I cared about people and I wanted to help them and I wanted to make the world a better place. I think the the legacy, you know, and this would be a totally different podcast, but, you know, just my spirituality, you know, rather than being you know, attached to an organized religion. I want to be, I want my legacy to be that I lived my spirituality and, and, you know, I believe in, in Christ and was raised a Christian. I want to be viewed as someone that lived that every day, not just check the box and went to mass on Sunday. And, uh, and I just, and, and hopefully I made an impact on people's lives. You know, I, I, I've thought about this a lot and, um, you know, there's always, uh, at Christmas time, you know, it's a wonderful life. And I think, you know, George Bailey didn't think that he made an impact on people's life. And it was only 
when he was no longer there or never existed, did he realize the impact that uh, and, and how li- people's lives were so much different because he wasn't in there? So when I think about it, Annette, I think about, you know, I hope that I, I, I impacted people's lives for the positive and that I contributed to, uh, to better things and uh, that I made a difference. And, and again, not by, by measures of success or possessions or titles, those kinds of things, just by, you know, living, living my best self. That's, that's what I truly want to be remembered as. And that's what I want my legacy to be. I love that. Can you tell us who the author is of that book, Steve, that you mentioned? Because yes. maybe others um, want to check that out. It's Arthur Brooks. Okay. Arthur Brooks, From Strength to Strength, you said? Yes. Okay. And it, and it talks about, you know, the whole um, premise behind it, and, and not that I'm giving a commercial, but it talks about, you know, the two phases of intelligence that you go through. There's fluid intelligence, the first part of your, your life where, you know, it's all about obtaining and you're contributing back. And then you take that wisdom and then it's crystallized intelligence and then you're giving back based on your life experiences. And, and that's where I feel like I'm, I'm at right now is all of these collective experiences that I have. And that's what I want to do in the next chapter is use them not to say, oh, look at me and you have to do it this way. But, you know, to get people to think about things a little bit differently just based on what I've experienced. And it's just been it's been a really interesting it's been a really interesting uh, read, uh, and there's so many interesting chapters in there. But that that whole two phases of intelligence is what's really at the uh, uh, really at the uh, the crux of the book. Um, and uh, I've gotten a lot out of it. And again, if you would have told me that I'd be reading these kinds of books, no way. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes things happen that at the time we may um, resist. And then when we look back, we recognize that it may have been uh, a blessing, something that saved us from something else. So, uh, and I see all the changes in your life over the last two and a half years, and it's amazing to watch. And I have a final question for you, Steve. So the title of this podcast is Live the Width of Your Life, and it's based on a Diane Ackerman quote. So what does it mean to you to live the width of your life and not just the length of it? And how do you do that in your own life? So that's a great question. I think it's really, you know, as, as I think about it and, and, and the journey that I've been on, it's about the depth and breadth of the experiences that I have and the relationships that I have and, and the choices that I make. And it's, it's not about having, you know, although it's good to have a bucket list, it's not about, you know, going through life and just checking things off. Um, it's about really looking at those things that are important in your life, the people that you're, that are important in your life. And again, I've said this, um, throughout our conversation, um, it used to be about the quantity. Oh my gosh, I need to have a party and have everybody that I've ever come in contact with. Now it's, it's about (laughs) the quality of the relationships and having the opportunity, not just to have a casual, Hey, how are you? But being able to really sit down and uh, and have meaningful conversations with people, and you know, when we're traveling, not about you know just zooming in and out of a museum, but really exploring 
oh my gosh, what was going through this artist's mind when they were creating this? And it's, it's just, it's looking at it much more in some respects, holistically, and just mm -hmm. taking the time, not mm -hmm. rushing through. Uh, and I think um, that's what it, it means to me is, is not rushing through and just looking at quality and looking at the depth and breadth of, uh, of, of everything that I'm doing. I love it. Love it. Love it. Beautifully said. Thank you for joining us today. I am so grateful. And I know that the story is going to be inspiring to those that have an opportunity to listen. And if you are listening today, please like this show, rate it, share it with friends, um, share the message, these positive, positive inspirational stories. And of course, subscribe to be notified when new episodes are available. Thank you, Steve. And uh, look forward to uh, having you back in the future. You could tell us a little bit more about your new adventures. Sounds great. Look forward to it. Thanks, Anata. Thank you.